people and thankful for the fellowship of our own churches. It is an adjustment moving to North America and the distances involved in terms of fellowship between churches. And when you're in Northern Ireland, it's, 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 quite, it's quite different. In fact, recently, I think it was when we had uh, Mr. Stephen Greer with us in Greenville as a student. He's entering his final year. And he, we had him for a number of weeks in Greenville over the summer. I think he said something to the effect of, you know, to, to have an equivalent of the, the density of churches. Just, we're just talking about free Presbyterian churches in South Carolina. There would be probably 200, 200, 250 churches, free Presbyterian churches just in South Carolina. So that gives you a sense of the density of free Presbyterian churches in Northern Ireland versus what we have here, where we might have one in a state here and there, uh, versus having 200, 250 in one state. So it gives us just a difference, and it's a challenge then of enjoying fellowship in the same kind of way. It's not possible. But we appreciate, therefore, our presbytery weeks that allow us to come together. It is good to see the elders here as well. I'm glad for what God is doing with them. Returning to Jude, and I, I've picked up enough from what was preached this morning that I have had serious doubts about whether to proceed, uh, whether I should turn to what I preached in Greenville this morning. Uh, but we are here and trust that in God's providence this is where we're meant to be. And so we want to read the latter verses from Jude 17. Jude verse 17. Some years ago, verse 24 became very precious to me, encouraging me in what I had, what we all have in Christ and so that will be the focus of our attention tonight. But let's read from verse 17. But beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. How that they told you there should be mockers in the last time who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. These be they who separate themselves, sensual, having not the Spirit. But ye, beloved, building up yourselves in your most holy faith, Praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And of some have compassion, making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Saviour, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. Amen indeed. Let's just still our hearts momentarily in prayer, beloved. You pray for your own soul. Pray for your own heart. That God would have a word for you. Our God, we still ourselves here, thankful that there is a security for the people of God. There is a confidence that is rooted in not ourselves, but in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. We're thankful for this congregation, for those that gather here, worship here, serve here. We pray the benediction of heaven would be upon the ministry of this congregation. Bless its ministers, grant that its oversight may be empowered with the Spirit in these days, 
Oh God, we pray that we might even have our hearts more filled with hope and expectation that despite all the challenges, all the headlines, all the difficulties, all the discouragements, all the broken homes and broken marriages, even among those that profess the name of Christ, yet we come expecting and depending upon the God who is able to do exceeding abundantly above what we can ask or think. Revive thy church, Lord, even now. See your empty hearts. Fill them, we pray. We come bearing them and ask that for the glory of our Lord Jesus, for the honor of thy Son, fill us, meet with us, satisfy us as we feed on Christ here this night. Give us much of the Spirit now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I think we are all aware that we live in what may be termed challenging times as far as the church is concerned. And everywhere you look, you see fearfulness among the people of God. You see them worried about headlines, concerned about the trends, wondering how we're going to stop or stem the encroaching influences of, of moral decadence and so on and so forth. And we sometimes wonder then, well, well, what's it going to look like in 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, should the Lord tarry? And yet when we come back to God's Word, we realize that difficult days are not new. And right here, as Jude writes to encourage the people of God, you can see just something of what was in his heart and mind after he gives the introduction. In verse 3 he says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation... And I wanted to encourage you around those common thoughts and themes and doctrines that we believe. It was needful for me to write unto you and to exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I will therefore put you in remembrance, and so on and so forth. He has to address the encroaching influence of ungodly men into the church. And it's not simply that they are making their way into the body of Christ and influencing the body of Christ. It's what it does to the people of God. It's the discouragement that it brings. The sinking feeling of what's going on. Because I'm sure there were those that could sense in their day not just what had happened in terms of Pentecost and the outpouring of the Spirit and seeing all the advance of the church that rapidly occurred in the first few years, that as they look back on that, maybe there wasn't the same degree of remarkable advance even in just a few decades from that time. Maybe there's a slowing trend, a, a sense that things aren't happening, that we haven't seen a sermon like the day of Pentecost in years. We haven't seen 5,000 converted like Peter saw shortly after that in years. And is there a decay in the church? Are we going to come to an end? It seems like maybe we're stalling. There's discouragement. And especially when they sense the encroaching influence of ungodly men, there is this fear. What will happen to the church? And more to the point, what about us ourselves? What Jude goes on to do then is draw from history 
the fact that ungodliness and wickedness is not new. And even among those that would be found among the truth or having access to the truth, there is this departure. He addresses angels. He goes back to other individuals through church history. Balaam, Cain, so on and so forth. Korah. These people come to the fore as examples of others that infiltrated and despite their access to the truth, they, they propagated evil and they had a, an evil leavening influence upon those around them. Well, given that such men are still present in this first century, that's where we began to read verse 17. They are warned again, Remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how that they told you there should be mockers in the last time who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. It would appear to me that in part what Jude is addressing is a fearfulness. That they're wondering, how can this be? How is it possible that such wickedness should infiltrate the visible body of the church? And he is saying, well, you've been warned. This has happened in the past. This is happening in the present. We shouldn't be surprised. Of course, when you reflect on what he is saying, it can bring maybe a question into our minds. Because what he is saying is, at least in, in, in the bulk of the examples he gave, these were people who had access to truth. And yet they drifted away. And so when you reflect upon what he is saying, the question that may arise within some minds is, well, if these people who were in the visible body, access to the means of grace, as it were, and they drift away, how do I know that at the last, I won't drift away? Maybe I'll be found among those that fall away. This church has been around long enough that I can make the assumption that you have watched over the years people come in, show zeal for the truth, and then fall away. Sometimes in ways that just beggar belief. You, just, you cannot believe what is happening before you. People who seem so zealous, people who prayed in the prayer meeting, people who were desirous to evangelize, people that you maybe give opportunity to teach in Sunday school and maybe even hold a service and take on other responsibilities. And yet today, there's a huge question mark over where they stand before the Lord. Well, you're in God's work long enough, you'll realize that that happens time and time again. And so the question we all may ask ourselves, well, what about me? Will I fall away? Of course, that question causes you to look where? To yourself. And that's not where your hope is. And so as Jude has been dealing with some of these difficult themes and challenging themes, he closes directing the attention of God's people where it needs to be. Verse 24. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling. And to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. This is a benediction, a doxology. And it is language filled with theology that enriches our hearts when we think this is where our minds, this is where our hearts need to go. All the things that are going on, what is the answer to a church that at times seems in tatters. Well, 
It is to look on to him that is able to keep you from falling. And so I've titled my message simply, Christ Securing His Saints. I think you're in John 10, is that right, this morning? So there, there's some overlap here. So maybe someone needs to hear that the Lord speaketh not just once but twice. Yet sometimes man comprehendeth it not. I trust you will pay attention then, because perhaps you are found in a place where really you are, you're staggering. And you're questioning the wisdom of God. You're doubting what the Lord is doing in your life. And you're wondering where this is all headed. Where is this leading, Lord? And you don't like what seems to be on the horizon. That may be the case. You know, something that struck me this morning, I was in preparation going over my notes, thinking about what I was about to preach. And I was preaching from Hebrews 7, the opening three verses. It deals with Melchizedek, the king of righteousness. And there is a precedent that's being set there in that passage regarding him and tying into the priesthood of of our Savior. Without getting into all of that, the one thing that struck me just this morning in a way that I had never considered before, in terms of Christ not only promoting as king, but providing as priest the righteousness that his people need. I thought, how inconsistent we are and how wretched is our unbelief when we sit here tonight and we say that all my hope and dependence for salvation is in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And if I asked you to give a word of testimony, your mind, your heart, and your vocabulary expresses hope entirely in Christ. It is His righteousness. What you're declaring then is that the Son of God took on flesh and lived rightly for you. And you have no doubt about that. You don't question it. You never have. That his righteousness is sufficient. But what happens when life doesn't go exactly as we might have imagined? What are we questioning? Has our Savior become unrighteous? Is he being unrighteous in his dealings with us? In his governance of our affairs, has he become unrighteous? Because if you start doubting him, what is there to stop you To doubt how he lived for you. What he accomplished in procuring your salvation. How can you be confident that he was righteous then, living for you? And then question his righteousness now and his governance over your affairs. If we trust in him, that he is all our righteousness. He has perfectly lived out in obedience for us. Now seated at the right hand of the Father... He is still governing in righteousness. So as we consider then tonight, Christ securing his saints, two main points, very simple. First, I want you to note that Christ secures his saints in time. He secures his saints in time. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling is where we think here of Christ securing his saints in time in two ways. First, the power exercised in this securing and then the preservation experienced 
in this securing. The power exercised in this securing is found there at the opening language of verse 24. Now unto him that is able. He is able. Here's a church wondering what's going to happen. Here are a people concerned about the drift within the body of Christ. The evil influences coming in. And the question then arises, well, what about me? Will I be preserved? And Jude lifts their eyes and to look upon the one who is able. It's just one word in the Greek. Dunamis. Ability. Power. Authority. Right. Sovereignty. The first out of the gate language having presented the challenge of their generation, is look to the one who has power. Look to the one who is able. Who is this one who is able? Is he just some mere man? Some mere prophet? No, no, no. We believe him to be who is expressed to be in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. We're looking at one who is unlimited in his power. He cannot be diminished in any way or frustrated in his purposes. He is God. He made the worlds. He upholds them by the word of his power. There's nothing that can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? This is the one who has unlimited authority, unlimited power, and as the God-man stands on our behalf, he went there telling us, echoing in our ears that all power is given unto me in heaven and on earth. Don't doubt. Don't question. I have all authority, all power. And Jude says, that's where you need to cast your eyes. When you're wondering whether you can stay the course, whether you will survive the trials, whether you will pursue Christ amidst all the challenges, when you wonder whether the questioning line of of doubting His goodness and wondering about what He is doing When all of that is going through your mind, Jude says, Now unto him, lift up your eyes to the hills, from whence cometh our help. This is the one that Thomas fell before, isn't it? When he was filled with his doubts, when he said, I'll not believe unless I thrust my hand into his wounds. And Christ comes to him, stands before him, invites him even to do so. Go ahead, Thomas. Thrust your hand in. And Thomas falls down in that moment. My Lord. My God. Oh, he didn't need to feel it. He didn't need any more. He just needed to see. And that's what Judah's doing, isn't it? Now on to him. He's not just stating words. He's he's causing, he's calling, he's encouraging, he's admonishing, exhorting the people of God. Look, look to him. Behold your God. Now some, of course, have theology that questions whether or not there are certain jurisdictions outside the will of God, outside the authority of God, such as the will of man. And so they will say, well, it's all about me and me preserving myself. Uh, My salvation is because I responded. My salvation is because I had faith to believe 
and that was generated by some ability within myself. And God doesn't come in. God doesn't in any way invade man's will. And so it's possible then that he just watches on. The Lord just watches on as men drift. And he has no power or authority to intervene. That's not the God we worship. That's not the Christ who died. That's not the salvation that we possess. That is rooted foundationally in some, something that we did. Some, some power within ourselves. No, this, this when, when Judah's casting your eye or encouraging your eye to look onto him that is able, it is the one who already expressed his ability when he saved you, when he stepped into your life, when you were traversing a path headed to hell and he steps in and opened your blinded eyes and called you to himself. And all of a sudden your whole demeanor and your, your perspective and your values and your purpose and everything was transformed right there in that moment. That's salvation. It wasn't, it wasn't Saul of Tarsus who had an epiphany on the road to Damascus and decided I'm going to start following Jesus. It was God invading and overthrowing his natural will. Making him willing in the day of his power. I say that because some of you may be worried about lost loved ones. And you wonder about whether or not the Lord is able. Now unto him that is able, yes, we're going to see to keep you from falling. But you just think how you get there in the first place. How you become a child of God. How you become a saint. It's to this one who is able. Beloved, he is able. I think at times we get filled with so much unbelief. We look at the trajectory of someone's life and we say, it will never be done. Or we become careless and we say, well, if God's going to do it, God's going to do it. Nothing I can do can change it. And yet he has invested in his people the right to come and to pray. Whatsoever you ask in Jesus' name, that will he do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. He encourages us that certain things go not out but by prayer and fasting. And yet the church sits, gazing and admiring this God who has all power, but never calls upon Him, Lord, exercise Your power in the heart of this child of mine. Save them. There is no doubt in my mind that one of the things we have lost over the last generation or two, and we can criticize generations, there's always fault in every generation. But there's no doubt that one of the things that previous generations possessed, at least by my reading and awareness, is that they understood the place of prayer in the Christian life far more than we do. We're happy. As a pastor, I can say, I'm content if I know God's people give some acknowledgement to God in the morning. Just acknowledge God. Never mind really seeking God. Where are the tears in our prayer meeting? Where's the sobbing for souls? Where's the burden? You'll look long and hard before you find it. 
You want to know why? Our eyes are not on the one who is able. The one who has power. They're not beloved. And often it's only through great trial and affliction that we begin to actually look to him. Often in some selfish way. And yet in the way that God intended, that's what he does. He brings the difficulty, he brings the trial to actually move you to seek him. The power exercised in this securing. But note also the preservation experienced in this securing. Because it says, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling. So the one who made the worlds and upholds them exercises his power and his dominion in a very specific way. At least here as revealed by Jude. He exercises his authority and his power to keep you from falling. Now if I'm right in my assumption that part of what you heard this morning directed your mind to John 10, then you'll be aware of some of the language our Lord Jesus said there. And how that power again is expressed in a number of ways. Yes, in the fact that he has power to lay down his life and take it again and so on. But you'll see also that that we are in his hand. And no one can pluck us out of the Father's hand. And we're in the hand of Christ. And we can't be separated from that position. These are wonderful truths. But of course when we realize that he can keep us from falling, the question then may arise is, does that mean that it is... If I backslide, if I fall away at all, that I'm not a Christian. Because perhaps you're here and in your heart of hearts you have to confess, I am cold. I'm not walking with God the way I once did. I'm not zealous for His will. I'm not seeking His face. I'm not burdened for souls. I'm not desiring His will. I'm living selfishly. I'm living carnally. The world has my affection, truth be told. Well, if that's where you are, you may have the question, was I ever saved at all? There's a tremendous verse I committed to memory many years ago. In Psalm 37, verse 23 and 24, it says, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. Though he fall, the good man, though he fall, the good man can and does fall. The man under inspiration who penned that psalm knew all about it, David. Was David a good man? Absolutely he was. A man after God's own heart is a good man. But he knew what it was like to fall. Repeatedly. Not just Bathsheba. Read through his life. Make a study of the the falls of David. You will find they're numerous. But he records, Though he fall, Yet shall he not be utterly cast down. Why? Because a good man has some inner strength. Because a good man is good because he has some ability and power to recover himself. 
He will not be utterly cast down. For the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. The reality is the Lord brings us low sometimes. He allows us to get to a very low place spiritually. Sometimes it's with trials. Sometimes it's with affliction. Sometimes it's with temptation. All sorts of things and we become very low. But sometimes he just allows us to drift. Like the disciples. They start walking afar off. Start creating distance between them and the Lord. Or like the church of Laodicea that the Lord addressed in Revelation 3. Or they're carrying on the work. They're, they're rich and increased with goods. They have need of nothing. If there's some project needed in the church, some practical need required among the body of Christ, the resources are there, the ability is there, the willingness is there. Everything's functioning like a well-oiled machine. Yet Jesus stands outside knocking on the door someone listen I'm standing outside knocking if any man open the door I will come into him and sup with him and he with me oh the Lord lets us drift on he allows us to go through valleys of spiritual deadness coldness, unbelief but good men fall And the difference is the fact that the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. I mean, when you think about it, when you compare, when you compare Judas and Peter, what's the difference? What's the difference between Judas and Peter? Oh, Judas Judas sold the Lord for for 300, uh, for, for 30 pieces of silver. I said, well, okay, you, you want to measure that against blasphemy and cursing and oaths, denying that you even know him? I mean, <laughs> I mean, really, is there much in the way of difference? One is denying him and getting gain for it. One's denying him. And the only thing he's doing is preserving his own skin, at least as far as he read it. The only difference between the two is in this. There's one that the Lord upholds with his hand. Satan hath desired to sift thee as wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not, Peter. That's the difference. One, the other one is told, what thou doest, do quickly. Satan enters into him, go. The other one, Christ prays for and upholds him with his hand. Child of God, if you feel that sinking sense that you have drifted and you're cold and you're backslidden, Judas lifting your eyes down to him that is able to keep you from falling. Don't keep falling. Don't push. Don't tempt. Don't test. See that in the providence of God you're hearing a word Maybe even twice today. Reminding you of where your eyes need to be. Where your heart ought to belong. There's a preservation experience in this securing. And so the Lord 
preserves His people. He exercises His power, securing them, and He preserves them in this wonderful way where they can be kept from falling. We are assured of this. Various passages, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23 and 24, The very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. I'm praying, and the one to whom I pray is faithful. He will do it. And our Lord Jesus prays in John 17, 11, does he not? Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me. Christ secures his saints in time. Here in this life, he secures them. He keeps them. He prevents them from utterly falling. Upholding them with his hand. But secondly, and like I said, there are just two main points here. Not only does Christ secure his saints in time, he secures his saints for eternity. Because verse 24 goes on to say, And to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. <laughs> this, is, this is great. I love this. Because first of all, there's a perfection that is enjoyed in this securing. Perfection is enjoyed in this securing. Because as he secures them for eternity, we're told he's going to present you faultless before the presence of his glory. Now there's a sense in which perfection is enjoyed in time. We are objectively made as righteous as we could be in Christ. There's a sense in which what is imputed to us is as perfect a righteousness that could there could ever be. And so we stand before God complete in Christ. We are justified by faith. There is no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. This is our standing. And so it may be true that there's a perfection now, but here we're being pointed to a time when we will be presented faultless. Faultless. <laughs> Faultless. Think of it. Faultless. Husbands and wives, is that how you see one another? Faultless? It's not, is it? It is not. Siblings, boys and girls, you look at one another and say, I have faultless brothers and sisters. <laughs> no, that's not how we live. And no doubt in your home, just like many homes, there are times when you see the faults that exist within other brothers and sisters and it becomes even a subject of conversation, sadly. And that we gather here before the presence of one who will present us faultless. In Colossians 1, 21 and 22 Paul writes there, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. This is where you were, unconverted. Yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. It's the same word. Faultless. Unblameable. Unblameable. That's great. Oh, it's great because this isn't how we see each other or even how we see ourselves. What gospel hope? Unblameable. 
faultless. There's a catechism question that I never read without being just enriched. It's in the shorter catechism, question 38, which asks, What benefits do believers receive from Christ at the resurrection? What benefits do believers receive from Christ at the resurrection? Answer, at the resurrection, believers being raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. Openly acknowledged and acquitted. Jesus looks and says, I know them. They're mine. And they are acquitted. He argues the case. He presents the judgment. Washed clean. Made holy. Not by effort of their own. But by what I have done for them. You know sometimes people walk into church. And uh, we don't really, maybe we see there's an oddity or a quirk about them. And we might even have a little, harbor a little thought. Not sure I really want this person to stay. You have questions about other people. Sometimes we, we even come to that point among those that we're familiar with. We... we we, we're meant to love one another, but we struggle to really love. In details we become privy to. Things that we think they may have said about us, or perhaps they didn't look at us quite the right way and we took offense or something else. And, and think about how little it takes for us to get to a place like that, where we start to feel a little off about someone. It takes not, it really doesn't take very much. Does it? I mean, imagine, imagine you knew all that there is to know about that person. You wouldn't look at each other. <laughs> and yet the Lord knows it all. He knows all the details. He sees all the faults, all the sins, all the shortcomings, all the hypocrisy, all the blasphemy, all the adultery. All, he sees it all. And yet he openly acknowledges them. He doesn't turn away. He doesn't ignore them. He doesn't act like they're not there. No, on that day he is going to stand and say they are mine. They are mine. And I see the victory of my finished work in them. I see it and I rejoice in it. And I openly acknowledge and acquit them. <laughs> Beloved, if that doesn't stir your soul, I fear for it. Come on, this is wonderful. This is what we have to look forward to. That no matter what, being in Christ means that my eternity will come to this experience. Nothing will separate this. Nothing will stop this. Nothing will hinder this. You are in Christ in an indissoluble union that is going to progress and continue and extend Throughout all eternity. He's not securing you just in time. He's securing you for eternity. In eternity. 
you're going to enjoy this standing. Yes, he will judge as it is the place of the mediator of the elect to do. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yes, he sees all the faults. And yet, he presents you faultless. <laughs> I love this. You want to know why I love this? Because I'm a sinner in need of Christ. My heart does not love God with all my heart, mind, soul and strength. It doesn't. There are days I wonder, Lord, what's happened to me? What's wrong with my heart? Why does my mind go to places like that? Why do I feel this way? Lord, what's wrong with me? And yet I am loved. Yes. How sweet are those words at the head of John 13. Just before the disciples are about to forsake him and flee. After having professed so loudly. Everyone. They, Though everyone forsake you Lord. I'm not. I'm not. Says Peter. And so before that little portion is told by John. He gives us a little reminder. A little preface. At the beginning of that section he says. Having loved his own. Which were in the world. He loved them on to the end. And then you read about their failures. And you're meant to step back in disbelief. He loved people like this. He kept on loving them. Even though they professed so loudly their loyalty. And denied him so shamefully. But there is also here pleasure that emerges in this securing. Not only perfection enjoyed, but pleasure emerging, or that emerges here in this securing. We're told because he's going to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. With exceeding joy. And it's not your joy he's talking about, it's his own. Judah's saying, the Lord is going to have joy on that day. Filled with joy. We have low views of our Savior at times. We project onto him what we think he should be thinking. Because we're such sinners. He must hate me. He must be done with me. He must be finished with me. Not according to this. He's going to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. It's almost as if Jude can't quite find the language. How do I express this to these people? How do I get them to see that what he has done for them is going to keep them through their lives and finally be consummated in such a way that it isn't just 
the Lord Jesus doing what he has to do, it's not just out of pure duty, but he finds the light. The light. He does find the light. The Lord is the most happy, joyful man who ever walked the face of the earth or inhabits heaven. The Lord Jesus. Pure joy fills his heart. We are told in Zephaniah 3.17 that the Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. Yes, rejoice over thee with joy. Joy over thee with singing. You! (laughs) You say, well, it can't be me. Maybe it might be the pastor. He's a good man. He's been faithful for many years. He keeps on plotting, serving the Lord, but it couldn't be me. I know my life. There's no way, there's no way he joys over me with singing. But you're wrong. He does. He rejoices over you with singing. Our Lord Jesus is the great choir master, the great conductor of all the host of heaven. And he leads in the praises, the praises of his people. We look at him and we get a sense of the kind of joy that should fill our hearts because it's already filling his heart. He joys over thee with singing. What, this little group here in Winston-Salem, North Carolina? Yeah. He loves it. He commanded angels to be present here tonight. It's that important. And he joys over all that goes on to his glory. You may wonder, well, maybe that was about Israel. Zephaniah 3.7. It's about, it's about the ancient people of God. It's not really about anyone here. But you may want to turn to Luke 15. Because in this very familiar portion of God's word, you see... Jesus opening up even our understanding not only of Jude 24 and Zephaniah 3.17 but giving greater expression to the joy that fills his heart. So you, you, you know, you know they gives the parable and it's a threefold parable. The lost sheep, the lost silver, the lost son is the easy way of remembering it. Maybe helps the children. But we are told the first section there where, verse 4, What man of you, having an hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness, and go after that which is lost until he find it? And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders, rejoicing. So who do we have here? The children know. Even the children know. Here we have the shepherd of the souls of men. The shepherd going after those that are lost. What our Lord Jesus is actually doing is as they deride, as they they slander him for being willing to sit with sinners. He takes their derision. And he says, you have no idea. You have no idea. I don't only dine with sinners. 
I go after them. I pursue them. And I win them. And so you have this presentation of the shepherd leaving the 99, going after the one that is lost. And when he hath found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Note that. Underline that. Rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. He's calling everyone else to rejoice. Okay, so this is a picture of a shepherd, and he has neighbors, and he's so delighted in finding the lost sheep, he calls everyone to enter into the joy with him. Verse 7, I say unto you, that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. And then you have the woman seeking for the lost silver. She seeks diligently till she found it. Verse 8, verse 9, when she hath found it, she calls her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the peace which I had lost. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. And I will never understand why people read that text and immediately start thinking about angels rejoicing. I will never get it. I will never understand. Are angels rejoicing? Yes. But they're doing so by command, by the initiation of the shepherd, by the woman, by the one who is first delighting in finding that which was lost. You have the parallel. You see the connection where he calls his neighbors together. Well, the neighbors later on are the angels. The shepherd. The shepherd is going and saying, Rejoice with me. The Lord Jesus, finding the lost, says to the host of heaven and says, Rejoice with me. Rejoice with me. For I found the sheep that was lost. I I will never understand. Oh, angels rejoice over one that repents. I'm like, yes, but they're not the first two. The Lord's rejoicing. That's way more encouraging. Way more encouraging. And why would he rejoice? Because the only way it's possible is by who he is and what he has done. The only way it could ever occur is by the sacrifice of himself. By him taking flesh And living in a way we couldn't live. And dying in a way we dare not die. Our sins laid on him. His righteousness imputed to us. Received by faith alone. And he sees that that soul there. Lost and undone. And he goes seeking for them. And they respond in faith. And they rest in him. And one is secure. And he sees there's another. For whom my blood was shed. And he rejoices. That his mission is not in vain. Yet another benefiting from his work. You like to rejoice when your work does good, don't you? When something you do has a successful end. When you've given yourself to something and someone appreciates it or it's valued or it serves the purpose that you desired and hoped for. Our Lord Jesus sees himself offering up himself and then sees souls gathered in, brought in, and he just is bursting. With joy. And so on that great day, when all from the four corners of the globe are all gathered in, all the elect brought in one by one, he will present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Yes, they're all here. Everyone counted for. 
Will you be there? Will you be there? Christ secures the saints. He secures those who trust Him. He secures those who have cast their entire hope of salvation on Him. He secures those who surrender any argument of their own goodness. He secures the humble who just cry out that the Lord might save them. Lord, save me. Has he saved you? Or more to the point, have you asked him to? Why would you not? (laughs) Why would you not? Why would you want anything else but what this text promises? Security in life through what he has done and what he continues to do. An absolute assurance in eternity. Not just that he begrudgingly, again, the way some believers deal with each other, where we, through gritted teeth, we put up with one another. <laughs> Imagine your Savior just put up with you. Well, you might say, well, be glad. Give me the lowest corner of heaven. It's better than the most glamorous part of hell. I get that, for sure. I get it. And that would be good, but that's not what he's giving, is it? He is, he is equally looking at, he looks at Saul, but he looks at the lowly widow who gave her two might, and he looks at all his saints and every one of them, and he delights in them all. And there's not one of them that he is begrudgingly letting in, where he's through gritted teeth saying, I guess you better come in. I'd, <laughs> I'd rather it wasn't so. Not true of anyone. Exceeding joy. He will be just as delighted in your entrance into his presence as he expresses over Saul of Tarsus, over King David, over the Apostle Peter, over any of the great saints of the past. Praise his name. Let's bow together in prayer. Oh, friends, let me just say one last time. Behold your God. Look to this Redeemer. Don't seek for joy in this world. Don't try to satisfy yourself on the husks of what the world offers. I promise you it it will not give you what Christ promises here. So if you're not saved, seek Him. Call upon Him. If you need any help, speak to your minister, speak to me. We'll be glad to open up the Word and talk to you.
Maybe some believer here is just wondering, does the Lord still love me? And I hope the message has rung loud and clear in your heart. He can't love any one of his people any more than he does. And he doesn't love any one of them less than another. Oh God, write thy word in our hearts that we might not sin against thee. Cause us to rest not in any effort of our own but entirely upon what Christ has accomplished. Fill our hearts with joy and gladness. Give us a sense of our acceptance. And when we're brought low, may we still have grace sufficient to lift up our eyes and look unto him who is able to keep us from falling. Grant that each believer here might persevere. May they not grow weary in well-doing. Grant that we might be always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. When we come to that time when finally we pass from this scene into the other, may we receive the well done, and may we behold the joy of our Lord Jesus as he receives us and calls us to be forever with himself. So further, thy work in this congregation, extend thy kingdom in this area, we pray. Impart us now in thy fear, And with thy favour we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.